You're listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. A couple weeks ago on your social media, you made a post. You had um, some buckskin hide um, that you had done, and it had the the like the long lines all the way down the back of it must have been a uh, a deer, oh, yeah. and some so. The story that went with that that was really fascinating. So maybe just explain a little bit what those what those lines were and kind of what it, what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, for sure. These were lines from barbed wires. They are scars on the animal. And even though when we make buckskin, we're taking off the entire outer layer of skin. We call that the grain layer. It's just gone. We scrape it right away. But still underneath it. Animals who live amongst barbed wire fencing will have these long scars that go usually from like the center of their back to the haunches. For really big animals that have to like lift up a fence on their way under, they'll have scars right from their neck all the way to their tail. And oh, wow. sometimes you see scarring and it's a predator attack. They escaped. Sometimes you even get an old bullet that went into the animal and the hunter didn't find the animal or maybe it was a bad shot. And the animal just heals and they live with it. And then down the road, when it's finally their time to go, when you're in the tan, you, you find sharks inside their skin. Yeah. Wow. No, I, 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 when I saw that, I just kind of, it, it kind of made me sort of see like another level that's kind of in this, that it's, it's, uh, the hides are, it's, it's an individual animal. It was, it was a living creature that had a life. Uh, and had a life story, and sometimes, like, uh, it reminds me of the tree rings. Like, some of that history of what it went through is kind of written <clears throat> literally on on its on its body. And the prevalence of barbed wire fences in North America is just is staggering. And and I don't know, maybe unless you get way in the north, um, that there isn't too many animals that don't live a part of their life having to learn to cross under over those things and and it it leaves it leaves a story written on their body that we don't see with the hair and i was like <clears throat> that that's yeah that was that was neat just the way the way you explained that on and and uh you know like you said this once the hair comes off and then you you discover these <laughs> these marks yeah, you do learn so much about that specific animal. And there's a lot of ways in which tanning will tell you the story of the animal that you're working with. But right from the outset, one look can tell you so much about their life, like where they have scars on their body. Mm. So the, the, like the predator scars, let's say like a cougar, uh, would be, be a common one for, for deer, they must be like more like neck and front shoulders like you think of the it trying to grab it grab it by the front what what yeah. do, what do those marks look like it's, are they puncture marks yeah, or do they make are they leave scratches like the barbed wire so what i was taught by my mentor first high time mentor is that cougars and cats they typically hunt from the back cougars hunt a lot more together than we are aware of there's a lot of great research going into how cougars actually are a bit more social than their reputation is but if you think of like mm. the classic solo cougar like out there hunting for prey they're attacking from the back and so they're grabbing onto an animal and like digging their claws in there's times when you can see claw marks and there's sometimes they'll even drag on the animal and that looks amazing it's unmistakable you can't explain it by any other way than like the cougar paw print they got like slid as the animal escaped from their claws and then if it's canines if it's a pack of wolves my understanding is that they usually take down an animal from the front and that's when you'll see scarring from the neck or their um, the breasts right here where an animal has come from underneath and then maybe they jumped and they were able to get away oh interesting Yeah. yeah it's amazing and like so much of the way our media portrays hunting mm-hmm. the natural world is that predator goes for a prey and it's over but actually most hunting attempts are unsuccessful 
So that means there's a lot of prey animals out there who have escaped and are pretty adept at it. And whatever they go through, you know, that's going to just wind up on their body. Yeah. Wow. No, if, uh, I, I wonder, I wonder if they're like people were like, oh, and, and this scar here, that was, <laughs> and the one over here. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I'm sure they get together. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure the deer do. Yeah. Brag, bragging rights. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Curtis, he, Curtis worked in his Boppa's taxidermist shop a lot when he was younger. So he'd done lots of the skinning and prep work and fleshing and that sort of stuff. And, uh, Curtis, do you remember anything particular like that? Like some, you no. you were dealing more with the raw hides, which. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't really anything, that. anything like that. I mean, other than just kind of weird injuries that you'd see on the carcass. Like I remember a, gri- a grizzly bear, a big old grizzly bear that had its whole back jaw was fused and its canines were all smashed up from a, a bullet that went straight in this way and you know just weird like just broken bones mm-hmm. that had kind of fused or that sort of stuff but yeah never any never any sort of indication of predatory attacks that i can remember huh yeah maybe just uh when looking at the at the t- tanned hides when they came back you'd see you'd see more of that so um super cool hey everybody it's mark hall your host and it's Curtis All, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Man, we're uh, we got a big truck lineup for them. I think they gotta step things up here and start producing our our models of trucks that we have. With, we with have the vehicle with the the decal wraps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a lot of them. But uh, yeah, as always, big thanks to Alpine Toyota for continuing to support us and what we do and bringing everybody, all of our listeners and fans, the discussions and conversations we have, like the, uh, the very cool conversation we're about to have today. So once again, as always, thank you to the folks at Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook. Yeah, we could uh, get them to do a, a full vehicle wrap of one of Mara's buckskin leather so it'd be a toyota special edition with the buckskin leather wrap on it with some barbed wire scratches and (laughs) and cougar claw marks so a couple couple fleshing posts in the back (laughs) totally (laughs) um hey we're really excited about this episode so our guest is mara kerr welcome thank you thank you for having me here first first time on the show we're super excited about it this is such a uh, topic that's really fascinating, and I and I think there's a, a lot of people are going to be interested in learning a little bit more. I, th- I think it's something maybe on the hunting side of things. Um, maybe folks take a little bit for granted, um, you know, hide tanning and and all that sort of stuff. So I'm really looking forward to learning a lot. So Mara, you are a teacher and a mentor. You have a studio on Vancouver Island where you teach natural hide tanning methods is that is that a good summary (laughs) that's a great summary (laughs) okay um so is this right your your primary studio is in the Saanich Peninsula area on the island yeah it's in Saanich which is also where I live and I travel to teach pop-up hide tanning workshops throughout the spring and summer all around British Columbia no that's that's cool. Um, do you think there's a, <clears throat> or have you seen like a resurgence, like in, in recent years and, and like a growing interest in people wanting to learn to do this for themselves? Or is it something that's always been there, like a background interest? All right. Yeah, I think that's a good question. It's something that ebbs and flows a little bit. I got into tanning. 12 years ago and when I started learning natural high tanning it was really compartmentalized and wrapped up in survival skills and like the survivalist movement so it had a certain aesthetic to it it had a certain 
social culture that went along with it. And it didn't necessarily work for everyone who wanted to be a high tenor. For myself, for example, not that much of a homesteader, not that much of a survivalist, but what I love is textiles. And what really drives me is, is my passion is learning ways to live more in reciprocity with the land. And so I come at high tending by a really different way than how it was presented to me when I first started. And I think that what I'm seeing now, most of all, is both that high tending as a craft is growing in its appeal, but it's growing specifically amongst folks who aren't necessarily coming at it from a wilderness frontier sort of perspective, but who's mm-hmm, coming at mm-hmm. it from the sense of like, what are we doing with this unsustainable economy that we live in? And our textiles all come from across the world, but many of our leather textiles are from cows that are raised in North America, tanned overseas, and then sent right back to us. Uh, and so what I'm seeing is a lot of crafters, a lot of folks who are farmers or hunters that just want to keep making something with what they already do. And I think that is, is really inspiring because it's a way for high tenant to grow where it's embedded in the culture that we already live in. It's not some kind of subculture. It's, it's not a fantasy. It's, it's something that we actually can do in our everyday lives. Bringing it back means we're just going to be more and more developing like a healthy, sustainable culture at large. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's <clears throat> I mean, it, it, the, the raw materials, the hide, it can literally be available to everybody anywhere, even <laughs> folks in the big city, like, you know, in Vancouver on the mainland, like you don't get very far out into the Fraser Valley and there's sheep and cow operations and, um, hobby farms. And of course, hunters and stuff like, it seems like one of those things that if you wanted to you know, get your hands on, on a wet or a raw hide to, to, you know, if you weren't a hunter yourself or didn't have the animals yourself, that folks should be able to, to, to find one and, and, and make themselves something, whatever it is that they wanted without, like you said, having to have it shipped across from the other side of the world because <laughs> you got it on Amazon or something. And yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful, beautiful part about, about what you're doing. That's true. I think I think that high tanning has potentially a reputation of being inaccessible if people think about it at all, if they've heard about it. There's an assumption that, oh, that's like way outside something I could do or the materials for it must be really niche, really specialized. But actually the opposite is true. I mean, you're right, you don't have to go far from a city to find an abattoir or to know people who hunt, know people who know people who hunt. And the materials are so basic. The ingredients that go into the hive are just so elemental that really anyone can do it. The biggest thing you've got to get past is carving out the time. But it really is so accessible. It's just really like the knowledge that needs to be dispersed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the piece you said about like make, making the time, if this is something you want to get into it, because obviously from I'm looking at, you know, your pictures and following you over the years, it's like, it's a pretty, it's a pretty involved labor intensive process. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think uh, a, f- a friend of ours up in Edmonton, uh, John Snyder, who we've had on the show a couple of times, he has the food of field podcast. He, he coined this last year on, on one of their shows um, about, the joy of process mm-hmm. and and there's all these things that we do that <clears throat> like we we want to get to the end result that's what we want where where he's saying like the process is the beautiful part about it you end up with you know this thing at the end so putting in the time and and enjoying all of those steps and the labor that it takes like <clears throat> that's his love is is that process and and um that that's really kind of changed my perspective on a few things and and i think um it sounds like you'd approach hide tanning that way too it's like you enjoy all those steps you're not just uh get it over with and 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 i want my 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 warm rug at the end or or leather or something so it's definitely not a craft for the person who wants to like get it over with it'll just like <laughs> wreck somebody who's impatient 
that is something high tenant kind of forces upon you is like you've got to be in the process and even if that means you're going to stop halfway through and pick it up again later yeah mm. it just teaches you to like stick with it and have that dedication I often tell people before they come to a workshop, like the way to get prepared for a workshop is to understand that you're going through a rite of passage, even if you tend to hide before, because every single hide that you take is a rite of passage where you've got your prep work and you get into it, you totally leave your life behind for a minute because it's taking all your attention. Sometimes it's taking all your physical energy. And then you step up right to that threshold moment, that liminal space where the hide changes and you know on a molecular level it's changing its constituents they convert into something new and that's when it becomes a textile and then you kind of go back down you re-enter your life once the moment is over and it's so similar to every rite of passage there is stepping up to that threshold point and then like on the back a little bit changed when you like re-enter life. oh wow no that's a that's a that's a really cool cool way of looking at it. I never, never thought of that. And I, I got this off your website, but it's, it, it's like a little definition. High tanning is the act of turning an animal skin into a textile. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you just said that. And, and when I read that, it was like, it was, it really changed the way I, I look at high tanning or think of it. Cause I'm, I'm always thinking at, of the end product of still being like the animal's hide. But it has, and it's you. You've, like you said, you've changed it at a molecular level, and you've turned it into uh, a textile through some of the processes. What we'll, we'll, we'll get into here, and it was like that's really, really a remarkable way of thinking about about that. That's what this is. It's a is is it's a textile. It's a form of a textile. Like, yeah, that's. I think I take a bit of artistic liberty when I use that word because. I think if you were to ask a textile at the university, they would be like, oh, textiles come from plants. But I'm like, no, look at how similar this buckskin mm. cloth is to a piece of linen. It has the same texture, weight, the same elasticity. And so, I mean, you could call it a fabric, we can call it a textile, but it is, it's not the same as what it started off as. It's no longer a piece of skin when it undergoes these organic chemistry processes and I think that you know so much when you think of what a hide is you think it's either a pelt with the hair on or leather but in natural hide you can make a much wider variety of fabrics of textiles oh then you can really like in a commercial tannery which just pumps out leather thick saddle felt leather whatever Um, so we've lost a lot of that in our conceptualization of what the world of textiles is yeah, I like to definitely presence that so our imaginations can run wild because there's no end to what you can create. No, I I think it's I mean, if there's a strict definition out there somewhere, I think this one this one speaks speaks to the process, you know, better. Um, think thinking of it, you know, as a textile, um, in the sen- in the same sense as you know, if it was plant based fabrics, that you can produce like the end product could be could be different like every plant-based textile cotton let's take for example isn't exactly the same at the end it's it's either a different color a different thickness um you know all all of these different uh, end uses in mind is it going to be a bed sheet is it going to be a um uh, is it going to be a wall tent (laughs) you know like like there's all these different outcomes and so i imagine uh, thinking about a hide that way can be can be sort of the same way. It's like where you know what's the end use and um, just like you would a textile. So yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful way to look at it. <laughs> um, so maybe to speak a little bit about kind of the history of tanning, um, even if it's you know, specific to how you were brought into it, you know, what, what you learned uh, from it, because obviously it's something that's been in human civilizations everywhere in the world for tens of thousands of years. And um, yeah, the reason I kind of wanted you to talk, talk about it, because there was something you had written, uh, again, on your website that 
that you you sort of really talk about it from a cultural perspective. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, if we talk about the history of canning, we're talking about something that spans 100,000 years. <laughs> so there's a lot of different points of entry we could make. But you're right when you say that it's something that is found worldwide and every culture in humanity has had high tanning in some form. There's one tanning method that we know everyone has had the beginning of time people became human, which is smoke tanning, also called brain mm. tanning. That's the one with the most simplest of ingredients. You mix the brain of the animal or any other emulsified fat. Brain just happens to be a really accessible one. You've got an animal and you've got eyes. And after that fat goes into the skin, the skin can be softened. Then the skin gets smoked. And so it's the chemical reaction between fat or lipids smoke or aldehyde that creates the textile and that changes the skin forever. So that's just something all our ancestors figured out really easily. It probably wasn't a very big stretch of the imagination to go from hunting an animal to prizing fat to understanding that smoke is a preservative that also sometimes is kind of an all-chemical change maker. Sometimes I'm asked, like, how could people ever figure this out? And I'm like, they probably think we're ridiculous for this not being just so obvious. <laughs> because, like, <laughs> when you're surrounded by it, you know, you, just, you put the things together that, that make up your life. Um, the other tanning methods, mineral tanning and bark tanning, also known as vegetable tanning, are the other two overarching categories that we divide natural high tanning into. Those are more found worldwide where there's a high presence of plants that contain tannin or where there's minerals in the soil. So they're not completely global, not completely ubiquitous, but they are you know, probably, I don't know, but 70 to 90% of places around the world have at least one of those things going on. Right. And so tannins, uh, what I would be familiar with here in British Columbia are the tannins that would come from cedar, red, red cedar. Um, so there must be like our tannins, tannins, a plant, plant product. So that would, that's what you're saying is, is <laughs> cultures that had, ex, had the right type of plants or trees that produced tannins. And that would have been a, a product that they would have used. Exactly. So when you can look at what informed the culture that we're from, it goes hand in hand with what our ecosystem, what our, our land base is providing. Mm. So, I mean, for my ancestors who lived in Scotland, there's a ton of sheep around. There's a ton of alum that can be harvested from caves and outcroppings. And after this very unfortunate deforestation period, you're left with not a lot of tannin-containing trees, but a lot of tannin-containing heathers on the meadow. And so there's a very rich tradition of mineral tanning and vegetable tanning or bark tanning because it's like, oh, this is what we've got. We, and so we can specialize so uniquely and so niche. Oh, wow. It's like one type of plant because it's everywhere. Uh, and then, you know, you go to another place and the main tanning that happens is fish skin tanning because that's mostly what people's food source is. And so you don't see a lot of mammal tanning because people just weren't interacting with those mammals so much. So the cultural piece is really important about high tanning because what people are eating, the animals that they're tending, sometimes cohabitating with, that directly relates to then also what ingredients or elements from their land base in the form of plants or minerals, fat, they're mixing. Um, and that's how we create culture, right? It's like through our aesthetics. It's but the, the material part of our life. Yeah, yeah, kind of what's what's available to you on on the land around, or what you were able to to uh, uh, trade. You know, when when um, somebody had something, and and all of a sudden your quote unquote your technology grows, right? So um, totally, yeah, and that's... like the way, like if you're living on the edge of a continent and you're depending on trade routes, you have no idea how these materials get to you, like what they underwent and 
that's a really cool thing to look into, like the ancient trade routes that went all the way from Eastern China to Western Europe would bring leathers along with them. We often call them the silk roads, but there's many other names for them. Sometimes they're called the leather routes and like the fur roads. Oh. Yeah, you know, it's people like getting this pelt or this leather and being like, I have no idea, no idea how to do this. <laughs> <laughs> how much? but i I mean this is this is this is a whole nother like podcast philosophical discussion but you know what you what you said how how cultures all across the the world sort of all landed you know at least on some of the same methods especially the the use of the animal's brain and the brain and smoke tanning that still blows me away (laughs) like tens and hundreds of thousands of years ago, everybody was, was coming up with the same, um, approach to this. And there's lots of areas, you know, things, things in the world where they discovered, you know, similar things, bread and, you know, these types of things, but in isolation of each other, like maybe there was technology transfer. Um, that, that's an interesting one, but nowadays you think about it and it's like, oh, I want to make a, um, a corn broom. And it's like going to YouTube and it's like, oh, here's this person in Scotland and they're, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and it's like, oh, now I know how to make one. But, <laughs> but, you know, take, take all that away Were people really, you know, figuring this out in isolation or was there some kind of flow of information that we just didn't think existed tens and hundreds of thousands of years ago. But I think yeah, that's, that's a, a really whole... good point. I'm actually just, on a road trip with my friend right now and we're going into Lua Nation where she's from as we pass through Squamish territory which folks don't know that's right on the west coast of Canada and it's this incredible waterway that just the mountains rise super high on all sides it's called Hell Sound in English and this is a place where they know that folks from Hawaii from Polynesia maybe from New Zealand like Maori Nation were all hosted like they've got the stories and now a lot of folks are doing oh, wow. DNA tests and it's being like, oh yeah, like my whole family is Hawaiian and like <laughs> has these other bloodlines. And I think like a lot of sellers didn't believe those stories initially because we have this idea that travel didn't happen before sale mm-hmm. or something. But yeah, people have been really sharing technology for a long time, going way, way back tens of thousands of years. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that like that's a whole discussion on itself. <laughs> totally. So, um, so now you 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 broke down the main methods. Um, so there's uh, smoke tanning, which uses the brain, um, the bark tanning, mineral tanning, and then you also I saw had another category of rawhide. Um, right. So producing a different a different product. We can talk a little bit about that. So maybe for each one of those, um, or if there's the similarities. Let, let's start us like if this is a sort of a mini course and you're sort of verbally describing the steps, um, starting out with, you know, like a, a hide that we've skinned off of an animal, walk us kind of through what, what, what's the process. And then when you're introducing these materials, um, the minerals or the alums or the brain, what, what that's doing, like, what, what does that do in this process? So sure. we so are, we'll we are with... your students. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll start with rawhide because that is a quasi textile that doesn't actually have a chemical alteration. Rawhide is just drying a hide out. And two different things can happen when you do that. On the one hand, you can put it into a flat frame and you stretch the rawhide and it becomes like a two dimensional shape super flat, super hard. If you were to bang on it with your wrist, you're gonna make a huge drum sound. And all all drums are just made of rawhide. It's really just taking a wet skin, putting it on a frame to let it dry. And then the oh. second way to make rawhide is you know, drying a skin out in the same way, but instead of flattening in a frame, you put it into a form. So, so many of our modern technologies that are plastic used to be made from rawhide because it was the first technology humans had that could mold into a form when it's wet and then dry and keep its shape. So like cast for setting bones um, and 
saddles. So many things that require a form that maybe now we even do with a 3D printer, the old technology is rawhide. <laughs> oh, wow. No, I, I mean, I, I completely get that because, I mean, you just think of something as simple as the rawhide chew bones that you can right. buy for dogs, right? Like they, it's wet and they tie a knot in the end and it looks like a bone and it's and it's a yeah it's a very hard material it's uh softens if, if it gets wet so i could see like making you know be able to make like a box out of it like you said put it in into a mold or uh yeah that's cool <laughs> so is that the same process if you cut it like you would you could make yourself cordage as well like would that be a product? Okay. Yeah, you can cut it into thin strips and then braid those strips together and you've got just this incredibly strong cordage that isn't going to expand at all upon pressure. It just holds its shape once it's dry. Oh, okay. Okay, that that I didn't know. So, huh. Yeah, because yeah. the, the classic one you can think of is the, the snowshoe, right? the wood the wood frame yeah. snowshoe and that's a that's a stretched raw height and man those things are bulletproof they're so <laughs> sturdy and strong you know and you think yeah. about them holding up somebody that's a couple hundred pounds so yeah and i mean there's still equestrian traditions that use really ancient technologies for horse bridles the raw height is the backbone of that um, i think there's a lot more equestrian technology is not my specialty. <laughs> I did grow up on a horse farm, luckily. And so I'd always see these images of bridles and harnesses uh, that clearly weren't made out of the strapping material, the poly material that we have today. Yeah, a lot of that is rawhide because when it is wet, it gets wet from horses perspiring, then it's going to be like gentle on the skin. Uh, I'm not going to cut into their skin, which is like, an advantage that it has over you know a lot of the more modern materials that we use now. Oh wow! Okay, cool. Huh? I didn't <laughs> I didn't know that rawhide was a was a saddle thing. But when you think about saddles, right, Curtis? They're like hard. Like they're yeah, yeah. Most of them are there are a wooden frame, which is kind of like the frame, and then the tree, which is kind of like the seat and and everything. They to shape all of that stuff. Most guys who are building saddles still are using rawhide for that reason oh, shapeable huh. it's tough wow. Yeah. That's crazy. wow okay so so there's rawhide so what what's the next one you want to walk us yeah. through so that's like, teacher, rawhide. i want to do a smoke tan hide <laughs> right? leather hair off take a couple steps forward so what i didn't <laughs> say about rawhide is that for those who have an image of what we're talking about, we're talking about something with the hair off, usually. Yeah, it's not okay. totally inaccurate to call a dried hide, rawhide, whether it has the hair on or off. But if you want to take the hair off of an animal's hide naturally without damaging it, what you're going to do is put it through a gentle alkaline solution. So that's either lye or lime. And okay. that, that's a really simple way to take hair off of the hide leaves the actual skin intact so it's not damaged at all. If you go and soak a hide in the creek, that's another way of doing it. It's a bit less controlled, but the running water will kind of push the hair out. But for me to take hair off and make rawhide, putting it through a solution with limestone, powdered limestone, the alkaline amino acids, the hair will grow. So then if I want to make buckskin, if I want to take it a step further and make this really soft cloth textile that's kind of foundation of all clothes making then that's when i'm going to scrape not just the hair off but actually scrape the whole outer layer of skin which we call the grain and any leather enthusiast is going to be familiar with this term because high quality leather is grain on um, and it's not just top grain it's full grain so that's what makes the other type of tatting that we'll get to in a minute but for buckskin okay. actually taking the whole outer layer of skin off because that's where all the strength in a hide is. So if you want to make something really soft and cloth-like, something really similar to linen and cotton, you take the outer layer of skin away and then you, if you put the skin through an alkaline solution, 
you then mix it with vinegar and water to take it back to its central pH. So just using these totally natural ingredients, you've now taken a hide from, you know, being a pelt with all the hair on. You've brought it all the way into something that just is, feels like basically a wet towel <laughs> in a bucket. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, this is the method where then you mix that hide with brains or any emulsified fat at all, and the fat will move deep into the protein fibers of the skin, which is collagen and elastin. And when it coats all of those fibers, it makes the hide soften so that when it dries, it doesn't become a stiff, moldable rawhide, it becomes something very soft. And then you smoke it at the end and have that natural chemical reaction take place. Okay. Um, so we'll go back to the, <laughs> the outer layer of the hide. Curtis, did you know that? Did you know what those terms were? Like, because he does leather work and stuff, like oh, cool. the 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 different, uh, like split hide. And like, I've heard that. What was, you said like full grain. And I had no idea that's what that meant. Yeah, I've, I've come across them. I hadn't really kind of known too know much about meant. them, but but I have, have heard most of the stuff that I use is just veg tan. Right. Huh. Tooling, no, I'd heard tooling those leather. terms. Well, th there you go. Now you're more knowledgeable when you make your your belts yeah. and stuff. So would it be would it be right to describe like the hide of an animal, um, like like a piece of plywood? Like are there like layers? Mm -hmm. And then so what you're talking about is taking off an outer layer um, to. Is that just making it thinner or is that a layer that if it dried, it would be hard? Like I'm, I'm just trying to think about, is it, is it, is it layers like a piece of plywood and yeah. you're, you're carefully taking one off or is it just thick and you're making it thinner? Right. I kind of love that analogy. It's totally like plywood, but it's like oh, okay. a plywood. Okay. Let's say, you know, it's like a birch plywood, right? It's like a fancy high quality plywood. So on the top, where the grain rests, you're, you're disassembling. You're taking this layer of skin away. There's a very clear separation or demarcation between the grain and the rest of the skin. So I know that folks listening to this podcast can't see me, but right now I'm like making my hands look like a piece of plywood. <laughs> <And> <laughs> every, everything that's on the very top, which is, you know, our skin we see in the world for an animal that's with their hair rests in all of the, the roots of the hair live in the grain so when you scrape the grain away you kind of land at the part of the skin where nutrients get moved around the interstitial layer that's also called the corium and then from that point on you have the dermis and the dermis is what would look like the inside of the plywood it's a bunch of fibers and those fibers are protein collagen and elastin and it's the that fibrous network that makes skin kind of have its, its like buoyancy basically whereas mm. the grain is where all the strength is because that's what interfaces with the outside world so when you take the grain away from the rest of the skin you're left with something that's just kind of like buoyant soft not not hard and strong okay okay cool now is that process of taking that that grain layer off is that uh scraping uh is that softening like does it come off easily or is that a fairly because i've seen some of your pictures where you've mm -hmm. got like um some fairly aggressive looking scraping tools and and it like people are working hard at at scraping is is that that process or is that more something towards the end people are working hard when they're scraping hot. <laughs> yeah getting the grain off is I mean, in my opinion, I think it's the hardest work of hide banding that there is. And you can either scrape it away when the hide is wet, or you can scrape it when the hide is dry. But either way, you're going to, yeah, really be spending half a day to a couple of days, depending on the size of the animal. Okay. Wow. So if you've got a new person uh, that shows up for one of your workshops, and they're like, I brought this moose hide from my uncle along. You're probably like, okay, maybe we'll start you something a little smaller because you're here. Yeah. In my workshops, I provide all the skins for everyone. Okay. So okay. that folks can learn on a very particularly sized 
pie and then have an understanding of, okay, well, this is how much work it was and this size is dinner. How do I feel about that other half that I have to actually do now? And yeah, it's, it's true. Like the bigger the animal, the more time it is, the more work it is. And sometimes just that means the more people you want to have helping out in the hive. Right, right. So now explain explain the brain part and the smoking part again. So what what exactly it, again, just explain what is it doing? Like your your the brain gets all mushed up and then you're working it into the hide. It's soaking into those fibers. So Yeah, totally. So the emulsified part of the fat mixture is key. And emulsified means basically all of the lipids are moving in all directions in the fat, which allows water to mix with fat instead of being separated. That's really okay. key because, yeah, you don't want to be coating the outside of the hide. If you can think about like leather shoes you might have when you coat the outside with fat, that fat is not emulsified. It's staying on the outside. But when we're brain tanning, you know, whether that mixture of ours is really literally the animal's brain or whether we've made an emulsified fat, you know, take some egg yolks and mix them with fat to do it at home yourself if you don't have access to brain or if you don't want to use brain <laughs> but you should because <laughs> they're the best um, but what it's doing is like that component of it or that quality of it I should say allows the fat to coat every single fiber on the very inside of the hide you can imagine like if it's, if it's that piece of plywood we're talking about like it's just saturated with fat inside and out and then the next step after scraping is physically softening the hide, which again is part of the labor. I find it a little bit like less labor intensive than scraping, but it's a whole day where you've got kind of this one window. The hide starts off wet and you soften it until it's dry. As you soften it, the fibers can rest more easily against each other because they've been lubricated by the fat. And so that allows them to not become rawhide. It's, it's both the action of the tan stretching and the fat okay. that helps it just become soft. Okay. Now, is that the step where I've seen where they'll have like a, um, like a fence post or a board and they're kind of like are totally. they, they're work, working it like over and back and forth? Okay. Yeah, that's it. If you ever see someone out in the field, rubbing an animal skin on a fence post out you know why it's that, uh, that action of like <laughs> yeah soft, you want to be breaking it. open <laughs> oh okay okay and then the smoking part so um is it is it like is it the creosote like the oils and that sort of stuff in the smoke that's the key or is it that it's another that particular ash or oh. Yeah, it's another ingredient called aldehyde. It's like a complex. There's many aldehydes. And they're naturally incurring smoke. So when they move into the hide, you know, as the tanner, you kind of direct the smoke right into the hide itself. It's when it just gets coated and kind of like back in the smoke. And then the aldehydes react with the lipids, which have coated all the protein, and it forces the proteins to change shape and convert them into aldehyde. That's oh, my understanding is that okay. then you've got this whole fiber network that used to be animal protein and now it's this preserving material that's called aldehyde. Wow, that that is fascinating. <laughs> so at the beginning of the show when you said changes at a molecular level, that's that moment. Wow. Totally. Yeah. And it is a moment. You get to just watch it. It's beautiful. You kind of sit back and you just watch your hide because it changes colors when this happens. It goes from white to golden color. The longer you smoke it, the deeper and deeper the color. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I, I've, I've seen the beautiful white and then that, that golden tan that you're talking about. So, oh, that is, that is fascinating. So is that the reason why like the 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 buckskin doesn't rot. Yes. Yeah. Okay. No matter okay. how many times it gets saturated in water from that point onwards, it's never going back to what it was. 
Okay. That, wow. That always like, why if, cause if I just took the hide and like wore it around after a week, it's going to start smelling, but I got yeah. this piece of leather where it's like years and years and years. And it's like, what, you know, what happened there? So, wow, that is, that is amazing. Um, and it, yeah, going back cool. to what we were first talking about is like, people figured this out. It's like molecules and chemistry and stuff, you know, like way before test tubes and pH strips and all that sort of stuff came along. And that's, Absolutely. huh, wow. Now, yeah, would the scientific you do... method is on display there. People must the, totally. troubleshooting, you know, figuring out the... Yeah, because you can... <laughs> You can guarantee people were like, you know, the next day it's like, ah, oh, darn, all the hair fell out. And it was like, okay, what did I do wrong? You know, a little, adjust a little bit, go back to the drawing board. Yep. Um, yeah. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of trial, trial and error there uh, as well. So that the brain tanning smoke method, would you be able to do that with a hair on fur textile as well as buckskin? Hair, hair off? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you can skip the whole scraping step and the whole alkaline soak. Uh, just keep the hair on and then you'll move into usually framing the hide up to make it into raw hide first and then take some sharper scraping tools just to thin the hide out from the inside. And then you, same deal, you apply your fat, you soften it in the frame, get it totally saturated with water and fat and then as it dries you soften it and then smoke it at the end again okay wow now the so so tell us about the other so so bark tanning um how does it differ uh in the process from what you just explained what's what's replacing what in this this process or is it something completely different yeah, it's a little bit of, of both. It's the same and it's also unique. So in English, we have this very rare kind of like logic to our hide tanning systems where we name every method after the ingredient that tans the hide. Just so rare because then in many other jargon words, hide tanning, you're like, this doesn't make any sense because it's just the confused centuries. Uh, but bark tanning is just what it seems. You're mixing bark or another plant that has tannins in it to then create leather. And so that's gonna create the material that we know more commonly in like contemporary Canadian culture, like our shoes, our belts, our bags, so many things are made from leather. And commercial leather is typically made from chromium, but up until the 1850s, all leather was made from plants. And all plants have tannins, which are also called tannic acid, but not all plants have enough tannins or the right type of tannins to transform a hide. And so you find the plant that has the right type of tannins in the right quantity, and you soak a hide in a tannin bath, essentially, and those molecules move into the skin. They find a protein to lock with and bond. And then when they do, the same thing happens. That protein changes shape, and then the hide takes on color of whatever the tannin is. So if it's dug fur, it's going to be a little bit of an orange color. If it's hemlock, mm. if it's a conifer hemlock, it's going to be purple. Uh, and then, okay. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Like, if you've ever scraped the bark of a tree and then seen rain get on it or something, you see the dye of that tree, that's the color that then the hide becomes. You still get in that um, bark. And it takes a bit of time. It takes anywhere from a week to a couple of weeks, kind of depending on how diligent the high tenor is at strengthening the solution and always adding more and more tannins to it until you reach this point where ideally every single protein in the skin has locked with a tannin and then that forces the chemical reaction. And you actually get to see over the course of a few days, you put a piece of skin in and it comes out as leather, just like that. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So that method, then you don't then need to dry it and do the smoke part. 
Is that That's correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Here, it's so like it's just... it comes out of the vat and it's like, voila, purple yeah, leather. exactly. <laughs> purple leather. Yeah, like typically you dry it in a frame so that it's nice and flat. Otherwise, it's always going to look a little bit like an animal. You know, it's going to kind of have shoulders, you know, conches. But oh, okay, put it in a frame. okay. That's how you make flat leather. And then you oil it just to give it basically a finishing coat so that, you know, it, it stays mm. sturdy out there as well. And that's it. Oh, cool. Cool. Well, the, I need to... I need to go scroll through your, uh, do you have it on your social media, some purple leather? Cause I really want to, I can, I can picture it. So I, I just got to see, I got to see I that. Do. So yeah. yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm gonna, now I'll know it wasn't like a, a dye or something. I'm like, aha, uh -huh. hemlock. Uh, um, so should we talk about mineral tanning? Yeah, mineral tanning. I was just gonna say we have we have juniper here in the Rocky Mountains, and it has uh, a lot of like similar to cedar, uh, red cedar. It's got a lot of like tannins and stuff in it, very rot resistant, um, but a very purple purple heartwood in it. And um, yeah, I wonder if that would would produce a purplish or a burgundy tannin. I know you that us, juniper you is thinking. Used. Is it okay? Yeah, yeah, it is on. It's on the list. I've seen this incredible list from like the 17th century of all like, dozens and dozens of plants that were used, and some of them just blew me away. It's like rosemary being a plant. That oh wow! When you find rosemary in its natural habitat, and it's like a big old growth shrub, you can harvest enough of it, make leather with it. Oh, cool! Oh. Sure. So let's let's talk about the mineral tanning process and what's what's replacing what in that method. So the mineral tanning I know of uses the mineral alum, which is aluminum potassium sulfate. And so just like the other two methods where people live and there was alum in the soil uh, or just in outcropping around, then you just take a handful of alum, honestly, and then Kind of mix it with the hive and depending on whether uh, you want to have a really bright white leather then what you're going to do is put the hide into water mix alum on it throw some salt in with it usually half alum and half salt because the salt will act as a softener a real traditional method that was just ancient technology is that in places like eastern europe swana where there's really deep soils that contain alum, folks would simply bury a hide in the soil and then dig that hide up. And be like, okay, cool, we've got leather now. And oh, alum, no <laughs> that's uh, pretty. That's that's pretty crazy that uh, that those that that lime and alum are used for tanning because those are two of the natural ingredients that are used to make concrete and cement which is what the romans way way back all those roman structures I, I i learned this out actually not too long ago all those roman structures are concrete and they to this date had the best concrete mix known to mankind the strongest and nobody can figure out what exactly that mix was but two of the ingredients in concrete are lime and alum so you can oh. you kind of go like one end of the spectrum you have tanning with those two and then you have concrete just kind of goes to show you the ingenuity and smartness intelligence yeah, of all those totally. ancient cultures like <laughs> maybe it, there's also a bit of an interesting story there that somebody that was trying to develop a hard concrete actually discovered a way of making leather or vice versa vice versa their, yeah their their leather material turned into really hard concrete so yeah wow yeah. So I, I love that white leather and i've always wondered how you do that like that that is like my favorite actually it's the really really <laughs> bright white so <laughs> oh that's great that's the album it's like it's direct reflection of the material which is so cool oh, the ingredient like alum is mm. white when i buy it now i'm buying it in like a really purified form and it's just this like white powder that you then mix with salt it's technically from the constituent perspective it's also a salt it's a double salt 
I don't know enough about chemistry to tell you more than that. Yeah, yeah. But it's cool because that means, you know, in places where it wasn't found in the soil, if it forms outcroppings, you can just go and find it. Like my teacher from Scotland says that he goes down to the seaside and you can find alum just sticking out of a, a rock and carve it away and then carry it home. Right. I wonder if that's what they call the chalk cliffs in Scotland and stuff. There's these white chalky cliffs that are really from, and, and so the chalk must be the alum because it's just bright, bright white and powdery and they carve it out and unless it's chalk, which is, <laughs> I don't know, maybe chalk. chalk is not, not the, the solid form of alum, but I'll have to look that one up. It's, Huh. Very cool. I, I, I love that one where you bury it. I was just talking to someone the other day about this and they were like, well, how could you bury it? I mean, what did those, what did folks do with like their corpses when people died? And I got to thinking about it and realized that all the places where alum is found uh, in huge quantities in the soil are also places that traditionally would have sky burials. Okay. Yeah, which is pretty cool to think about, you know, just what we were saying a minute ago about the, like, ingenuity of technology. Oh, totally. Learning to live with land really well. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, okay, so for those basic steps, what, um, is there anything we've missed in there, like, that you would want to add? Well, I think that's a good overview. I think I'm okay. giving you enough info that if someone is really dedicated, they can try on their own. Yeah, because what um, we want to do is we want to get people to go, that is so cool. I really wanted to do some leather. And we're going to then wrap up by saying, well, this is where you can go learn and spend a weekend and do workshops. So we'll, we'll make sure. Um, so one of the pieces of advice that I want to give out there, if somebody's thinking about this, because hunting season is coming up, um, say you get a deer, a moose, or you know something like that, and you're, you're going to think forward, what should they do with that hide? Is it best just to freeze it, salt it, not salt it? What should they do if they're going to come to your workshop? The first thing someone should do with the hide is always flesh it. Just get all the meat off the hide soon as you can gotcha. pretty thoroughly and then if you've got a freezer put the hide in the freezer if you don't have a freezer space or if you were like well but my hide my freezer is already full of hides from doing this for years then you can take about like three cups of salt and rub it onto the skin side of the hide and then you've got a hide that's preserved for years just don't combine freezing and salting and i know mm. you guys probably know this right tech to tell you this that you know freezing will lower the or sorry, salting will lower the freezing temperature of the skin. Gotcha. So just choose one or the other, and then you can be confident that hide is going to be ready for you when you are. Okay, fantastic. Okay, so I do I do want to tell people about um, your workshops. So um, if you go to your website, www.fernandrow.com, we'll put it in. Um, the show notes, so uh, Fern and Roe, R-O-E, not R-O-W, uh, .com. Um, you can find Mara's workshops. So I see you have one August 25th to 28th in Sook uh, with some sheepskins, if that one is Yeah, still... it's actually the 26th to 28th, the so Friday, okay. Saturday, Sunday. Okay. And yeah, that one has a few spots that sheepskins. Okay, we're hopefully hopefully we can fill you those. And then the next one I see would be September 2nd through 5th on Salt Spring, Salt Spring Island, um, which was a, a smoked tan buckskin workshop. That's so, right. And this one on Salt Spring is at a farm. and It's also a camp out. So if you're not from Salt oh, Spring, you can come on over and feed you. Extra cool. Extra cool. Yeah, and then I think you always got workshops um, rolling and coming up. Uh, you can find Mara on Instagram. I'll put that in the show notes. So fern.and.row on Instagram. Lots of beautiful pictures and pictures of people working on their first hides. And, and then the other thing I see that you have is the hide club. And that's a, 
a subscription program that has like online mentoring yeah. and helping people. Yeah. Yeah, we've taken the most tactile of all crafts of hijacking and made an online program. And Go on virtual. It really works. <laughs> cool. So that opens up in February, but the wait list is, is open now. And uh, yeah, we're doing some special things next year. We've been running that program for two years online. Obviously, we did it with the pandemic like everybody else, and we found we just mm -hmm. loved it so much. So we're switching it up for next year, and we're making it a lot more specialized. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so I'll put, I'll put all that information in the show notes. Um, I have been, well, the pandemic um, messed up a lot of plans, but it is a bucket list of mine. I do want to come down to the coast and go to one of your workshops one of these days. <laughs> this is something I want to learn and do with uh, an animal that I've harvested, like a deer or something. I just really want that completeness, the full circle from from field living animal to food on the table to being able to make something that maybe I can wear and go back out on another hunting trip or something like that. That just, that resonates so much with me. I just want that to be from my own hands as well. So one one day. Well, I can't wait to meet in person, but mostly I can't wait for you to make that outfit. That will be amazing. Oh no, totally. And it, and it won't, and it won't be a moose hide. It'll be smaller. <laughs> Cause you'd be like, Mark, hurry up. Everybody else is done. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and walking us through this, getting us excited and hopefully getting listeners excited and giving you a little bit more listeners, a little more rounded knowledge on something that's very rooted in outdoors and connection to the land and hunting and even fishing um so mm -hmm. really appreciate your knowledge thanks thank you thank you so much for having me cool curtis take it away right on the hunter conservationist podcast is brought to you by alpine toyota in cranbrook next time you're in cranbrook swing by and pop in say hi to those folks let them know that uh you're stoked that they're supporting us and supporting other great conservation organizations like Ducks Unlimited Canada. I know they're a big supporter of them. And uh, to say, hey, thanks for keeping the conversations rolling with those boys. We uh, we like listening to them. Hopefully that's what you tell them anyway. So, yeah, make sure you uh, stop in, shoot them an email, whatever. Say, hey, thanks for doing that. Um, also, I mentioned it on a couple podcasts before. Uh, we've kind of been lacking a little bit talking about it but uh the hunter conservationist does a exclusive podcast on patron check that out the uh, uh patron.com slash the hunter conservationist podcast where mark and i sit and no bs no well we bs but it's kind mm -hmm. of a no no bs unfiltered Type. podcast where we just talk shit and do lots of other cool conversations. So go check that out. Five bucks a month. We really appreciate the support. Thanks to all those who are already patron subscribers. We appreciate you guys. And uh, yeah, right on. Absolutely. Thanks, Alpine. And uh, folks, again, check out the show notes. Uh, find Mara on Instagram, fern.and.row, and her website, fernandrow.com. Uh, beautiful. Um, beautiful Instagram page. Love your photos, love your website and the write-ups and stuff on it. Very, um, just, yeah, very resonate uh, a lot with me. And I think it will for, for folks as well. And one thing on your website, I just want to wrap up with this. There is a photograph on there of some of your students when they're done, I assume, and they are hugging their textiles at the end like hugging like face buried into like you would a clean pillow out of the out of the wash machine and they're smiling and it just looks like that is such a moment of elation like at the end of the workshop like it, it just that must mean so much to you to see that that people want to hug this thing and put their skin on it like that must be rewarding for you it is so beautiful to witness it. Yeah, mm. I mean, people are so proud of the work they've done, and sometimes it can be a real challenge. And then you just have the most gorgeous piece of 
cloth or <laughs> cloth, whatever it is that you made. Yeah, you just want to wrap yourself in it. Absolutely. No, I look forward to that. And I hope some listeners um, do as well and uh, find their way to one of your workshops. So, Mara, thanks for joining us and good luck on your travels tonight and your next workshop. Thank you. All right, everybody, we will see you in the next episode.